Hello and welcome. This is the latest Forever Blue podcast. Uh, delighted to be uh, your listening choice tonight. I know there's lots of choice out there for podcasts, for radio programmes and all sorts of other things. And I appreciate it personally. And I'm sure everybody who's involved in this podcast is appreciating that you listen to this podcast. Uh, it is, of course, a Manchester City podcast. My name is Ian Cheeseman. I spent pretty much 25 years as a commentator on the BBC. These days I'm a YouTuber, a podcaster still a radio presenter, columnist, all sorts of other things. Uh, so if you've never come across this before, you are very, very welcome. Um, I basically do a weekly podcast on the subject of Manchester City. And uh, the people who are invited on are part of the Forever Blue squad. And we have some of the members of that squad with us tonight, which I'm delighted to say. And uh, But we also have a special guest, as we usually do. So just before I introduce you to the special guest and the subject we're going to talk about tonight, let me just uh, say thank you very much to charleslouis.co.uk, who are chartered mortgage advisors. They buy and sell properties as well, so they're experts in the field. Uh, you heard the telephone number and the, the business details at the beginning of the podcast. You'll find them on Tinternet charleslouis.co.uk and you can have a look on there there's lots of things you can browse on and there's a telephone number so you can contact them and chat to them and if you're after mortgage advice buying selling commercially or privately then they're your people and because of course they are run by a guy called Dave who is a City fan then they will value your um, contact even more because they will see you as part of the City family so a big big shout out to them and thank you. Now then my special guest tonight is also a City fan but he's a former referee, um, football league referee, uh, assistant referee, linesman as well uh, and a proper city fan who, who lives in the area. Um, so very warm welcome to Scott Matheson, who is, uh, I know, a really good egg. So we're going to ask him questions and the panel are going to ask him questions and I'm going to ask him questions as well. Uh, starting, just suppose, with a, a general introduction to you, Scott. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into refereeing and why you became a referee. Well, first of all, thanks very much for the invitation tonight. And I will on, honestly answer every question put forward to me as best as I can. Wholehearted response back to any question. Uh, but going back to when I first originally started officiating, um, I actually commenced in the local Stockport and Cheshire Leagues uh, and then progressed up onto the Northern Premier League. And then I was asked to join the assistance list of the Football League, which I spent four years and then I had 21 years as a referee on the Football League. So I practically covered near enough 800 games in total um, on, the, on the professional side. Now, you're a City fan. Um, we know that. You're retired now, so you can sort of spoke, speak more freely, perhaps, than people who are still referees or working in that industry. What was it like being a City fan and being a referee? Um, I know you told me before that you refereed a City game, so you can tell us about that as well. Yeah, I was appointed to one particular game while both City and it was Oldham Athletic at Boundary Park, the fixture, um, were both in the Football League at the time. And uh, yeah, that, that appointment came along. I hadn't uh, responded back with any reason why I, sh I had any other family commitments or anything or anybody connected to the club of Manchester City. And um, they actually said, well, you go out and officiate the game. And that happened, uh, if you take it into perspective, uh, with my postcode coming under the Cheshire postcode as such, it's a big county and there's a lot of clubs within Cheshire. 
and uh, you could be appointed to any amendment. Anybody from any other regions of uh, England or Wales that came up, they would also automatically think, why have we got an official who's officiating a Cheshire team, such as Crew Alexander, Macclesfield Town, and yet he's from that borough? Well, that was where the appointments were. But at the end of the day, just went out, whoever the team was, whether it was five miles down the road, 50 miles down the road, you gave out and you gave a truly professional performance to the best of your capabilities, no matter where, who or where the opposing clubs were from. I wouldn't question that, of course, but at the time, had you declared City or were you? did you consider yourself to be a City fan at that stage in your life and career? No, I hadn't whatsoever. I mean, the City were aware that I had connections with the club due to my son had been on, at the academy for several years, many years ago that was, and also the reasons for the likes of Bernard Halford and some of the ex-Manchester City managers would contact me uh, regarding pre-season friendlies and testimonials that were being played at either the Etihad or at Main Road itself. So they knew I had a connection and thought it would be ideal. What was it like refereeing City then? And, and, and you know, what was the score in the game? And did you influence it? <laughs> No influence whatsoever. In fact, to tell you the truth, towards the, the dying moments of the game, that uh, City actually won 3 0 at Oldham. And um, there was a strong penalty shout for Manchester City. And I think the player who actually went down under the challenge in the penalty area was Teddy Cook. I'm uh, going back several years now. And I thought, I'm not awarding this. And that was the reason for it. But when I look back at it on the, on the video, as it was then in those days, I thought that was a penalty. And I actually got down Mart from the match assessor for not awarding what should have been the correct decision in a penalty kick. It actually went the other way. It, was it went the other way against me, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I actually fell a couple of places on the merit table list there with my, by not awarding that particular penalty kick. And the press at the time also said it, how the referee, Scott Matheson, um, failed to you know, award that penalty kick. Only he knows. <laughs> Let me ask you a couple, of, a couple of headline questions before we get into the detail. Uh, are you a fan of VAR? I am. It's going to take a lot, a few more seasons for it to be... It'll never be 100% uh, correct in its judgment calls because all the decisions that are going to be made actually go through the referee. They can only advise the referee from on-field decisions for him to either accept the word or come over and look at the pitch side monitor but it's going to take a long time. And when you look back at the time when we were officiating without any form of communication, uh, I mean, the first type of assistance we had was the buzzer flag system, where the assistants would uh, press the button and handle the flag. I'd have a pack on my arm, and that would then en enable me to know that there's one of them is connecting because either assistant's buzzer had two different tones. So I know which assistant wanted my attention. And it gave me the opportunity then, instead of keep looking across for an offside decision, I could also hold back for two or three seconds, see if there's a late challenge coming in. And then, then I could read that while the assistants were monitoring the next stage of play. But I think it's going to take a few more seasons before it's all finalised. But sure, we'll talk about Yeah, the clubs wanted it. We're trying to enhance the, every decision, make the game fair and right, and, and the outcome's got to be right at the end of the day, but it's not happening on every particular instance. And we know well, sure. that in recent weeks. I'm sure there'll be some questions that are more specific about VAR, which we'll come to. The other, the last question I'll ask you before I open it up to the, the other guys is, 
what and, and this isn't meant to be in any way a lauded question it's just an honest question right what do you think of the standard of refereeing at, it, at the moment in the top flight in the premier league is it as good as it's always been is it not as good or is it better than it's it's been what do you think generally my honest opinion this is the best set of officials that we've got at this moment in time um, and a lot, I mean, we've got nine FIFA assistant referees listed on the Premier League. And if you go back to 2020, we had two representatives. We had Anthony Taylor and Michael Oliver. And they had their own teams of assistants and VAR assistants were at, that were over on the, on the Euros. So they're working constantly together. And that's what you will find also when they're uh, officiating on the Premier League. It's the same team of officials that are working together week in, week out. And to me, if you when you've got the nine top officials, you know, FIFA ranked officials, and eight of them are from the north of England, and that says a lot for the standard of officiating from the north. Um, there's only Stuart Atwell from, from the Midlands and below who's active at this moment as a FIFA referee. Um, but I'm not saying we've got the best referee in the world, but if you take our top five or six referees at the moment, they're better than any five or six in any other country within Europe. Okay, well, that's that's Scott uh, kicking us off. Now, at the moment, I'm looking at four of the members of the Forever Blue squad. They're all, I'm sure, uh, dying to ask you a question. Let's start with with Mark, who's uh, representative on City Matters as well. Just just so you know who he is. Uh, but Hi, in this context, he's just a lifelong blue like me, just as obsessed, if not more obsessed than me. More obsessed. So, <laughs> Mark, go on. You've got Scott now. Away you go. Yeah, I've been. I mean, I, I, I almost want to make a speech about VAR rather than ask a question. I've got so much to say on it, and I get the feeling that when VAR was brought in, um, nearly every fan's got a really strong opinion for for or against, and obviously a lot of people in between. What I'm interested in is my feeling watching a game live more than on the TV is that now the officials can try to referee the game from. Um, from uh, wherever it is that the studio is, rather than live. I actually think the referees and the liners, uh, assistants, are miles better than we ever imagined, and VAR has proved it. The number of times that the line the liner gets the offside bang on right, I'm astonished by. I think VAR, for me, has um, shown us how good the refs and the liners are at the, at the job without VAR. And I almost wish we could go back to what we had before because I feel, I don't know what you think, but I feel as though they do too much refereeing from the office rather than on the grass. And I think they sort of take people back too far in the game sometimes and take too long to make, uh, make a decision on offside, for example. What do you think about that? Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying there. And uh, there's some kind words that have come out there in favour of the match officials. I mean, it's very demanding uh, yeah. going out and, you know, to officiate a game. But they are refereeing in the game as though the VAR would not be there. But they have got the luxury of knowing that if there is um, an error in judgment by somebody who's watching from Stockley Park, they will get the communication through to the referee and say, next stoppage in play or before it recommences, we think it's advisable if there's a penalty shout for you to come over and look at the monitor. Now, the guy or female who's operating in the VAR. Yeah will be at this possibly the same level of officiating as what the actual match referee is who's been appointed. Okay. So this then, you would say that, just say, for example, the, the match referee on the day doesn't award the penalty kick, yet the opinion of the match referee who's in Stockley Park thinks it is a penalty kick. That's where you're finding the inconsistency 
between right. top flight referees. It's one opinion against another. Now, it's all about opinions officiating and uh, the judgment on that on your decision making and the way that you work with your team. And at the end of the day, he's only being advised that the, 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 the uh, VAR referee cannot overturn any decision that the referee has made. He's just advising them, is it worth coming to have a second look for, right. and, and read it from there? And, if, and that's when he will then, if he does change his opinion, he gives the rectangle with the use of the hands yeah. and then he'll alter his decision. Or sometimes you see the referee point to his ear yeah, and, that's yeah. and that's regarding offsides only. Yeah, I suppose. Nice. I suppose for the for the fan in the on TV, it's great. It's great the whole tension waiting for a few. But when you're watching it live, the fact that, that the referee is clearly almost more an art than a science. You know, deciding whether a penalty is all about things like intent and various other things. And I, I've learned a lot from VAR. But what it's taught me is the referees and the liners are so much better than we ever gave them credit for. And I I, hang, I really would love to go back to the days and just use VAR for very, very occasional, complete mistakes rather than an error in judgment, as you described it. But I'm interested to uh, know what the other guys think. Can I just come back on that one, if you don't mind? Yeah. When you say about obvious errors being used for bad, uh, things like mistaken identity, yeah. say for caution procedure or... Incidents like that, I presume that's what exactly what you're looking for, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the big stuff. Like a handball that results in a goal and not just hitting, you know, like punching the ball into the net. There's been occasional things like that where people have palmed the ball. I think, you know, that's that's not to be... No one needs to go and make a decision about whether or not it was a clear and obvious. And I think I personally think they're using it a bit too much. Yes, and that's the clear and obvious statement, what you just said there. Yeah. Incidents like that, which you just described, that's when it should be used for... Adam, let's let's bring you in at this point and see what you've got to say. I mean, uh, you can either pick up on what you've just been hearing, or you can go take this in a different direction. You've got Scott to ask a question to. Adam, I don't know if you can hear me. Uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't hear you a second there. Um, well, I, as a sort of grassroots referee until ago, um, I was sort of really in support of bringing in VAR, and I, I still am. I still am. I still think it'll be great in the next few years. I think just as we're fine-tuning it and we're, it's not perfect. It will never be perfect, but I think it'll be a lot better than, um, than than making making errors that can be easily overturned. I think the quality of officiating was was really good before, but obviously I think this is helped. So my question was more um, not about VAR, just about communication in general with uh, the public and uh, communication with people outside of the. The, you know, the players on the pitch and the managers. Um, I noticed that there's a real reluctance for referees to be heard in sort of the media. Um, and there's been the rejection of, you know, um, post-match interviews, that sort of thing. Um, sort of the seen and not heard idea. I was wondering what your opinion on uh, that is, whether you believe that uh, it would benefit referees to have a voice, uh, whether that be in a, a written statement afterwards or an interview, my personal opinion probably wouldn't be an interview because that gives that gives the opportunity for pundits or or interviewers to really press referees when perhaps they don't want to be. But I think um, referees being able to put out a statement at the end to explain a decision if they would like to, when it's been perhaps um, 
assessed in, in the wrong way, perhaps in the punditry yeah. studio or, or by you know by Twitter, for example, because it's such a global game now and we have so much analysis over it. I think if a referee is being misheard and they think, no, that wasn't the reason why I gave that or I thought it wasn't a penalty because of this, I feel like there should be a way for them to get their message across and I feel like people would be more understanding towards referees in that respect. But that's just my opinion. I was wondering what your yours yeah. was on communication. That's been one of my biggest bugbears when I was an active referee. Um, I mean, it, we'll go back whether it's football league clubs or Premier League clubs. And at the conclusion of any game, there was supposed to be no contact by any of the managers or coaching staff from any individual club for 30 minutes at the conclusion of the game. I don't know if you were aware of that. Now, in that particular time, the, the managers could be irate regarding a decision that's gone against them or that they should have had, you know. And... Um, they would automatically then go straight to the press because they're all waiting outside now and they would give their response back in that half an hour. Then they, they would have come and have a knock on the door, 30 minutes at the conclusion of the game, and they'll say how disappointed. They've also had a chance to look at any replays on match analysis and stuff from that to, to justify the reason why they're unhappy over a decision. Now, in that half an hour, the press have gone away, the reports have gone out on the radio, the, all the media, etc., etc., before the referees have the chance to speak out why he or she has made that decision. And he's already gone to press. Now, that was me. I wish I could have spoken out aloud earlier to explain the reasons so that, or have contacts, providing that the manager was understanding, he wasn't irate, and we could talk in a, in a normal manner as we are doing now. Some just could completely go off their heads. They think they're always right, this, that, and the other. And that was the only thing that I sort of like had a bugbear about not being able to speak. Yeah. Yeah, it must, frustrate, it must frustrate you as a referee sometimes when, you know, you make, you make a decision and then you hear everybody talking about it and you can't contribute to that discussion. You can't explain what, what, what you did and why you did it. Yeah, it's like the match observer who's been appointed to the game himself. I mean, at the end of the day, normally you spend about 10 minutes at the conclusion while you're going into your change room edit. He'll go through his notes that he's made uh, and then he'll come in and he'll say to you, Scott, there was an incident in the 76th minute taught me through it. So I'll explain the reason why I did or didn't give that particular decision. He says, well, I'm going to have to contact you tomorrow. I've got to go home now, have a look at it again, which I didn't have the beauty of being able to do, and then I will feed back to you to see if, in his opinion, you were right or wrong. If he felt he was, I was wrong, he would downmark mark me accordingly in that particular section. Then... It was an opportunity if I felt as though I was right and I thought the match observer was incorrect in his judgment and his statement to me, I could challenge it. But more often than not, it was a panel of three ex-active officials and players that were involved who would look at these particular incidents and they would either have a two-to-one agreement that the referee was either right or wrong. It could be overturned, I would get, I'd get my marks back and what I should, the expected mark from that performance we should have been or it stands in the result of what the observers put. But so, I've, made, I've made numerous mistakes in my refereeing career. It's unfortunate. I'm not saying it's cost gains for anybody, but everybody, even players like, and coaches and managers, we all make errors of judgment in life. So would you support um, officials being able to speak out perhaps on a Twitter account if they would like to, or, or put out a statement to explain a decision if it's being sort of, misanalyzed if they feel like in the, the wider context you know pundits or uh, believe that it should it's this decision but in your head you're going no I, 
I, I, this is why I gave it. Do you believe that referees should be able to be to be heard as well as seen? Yeah, um, five or six years. The way the game's moved on now, it's never going to happen. That I'd love to have spoken out, you know, and and, and done an interview for a couple of minutes at the conclusion of a game, so that everyone could hear from it. But we have got representatives. If there's something that's got untoward occurred, you'll get the referee's uh, manager coming clip forward the next day. There'll be a press uh, statement, and he will say, "Unfortunately, the referee made an error judgment yesterday, and that particular decision um, was correct to be overturned." And we'll be looking at that, and it'll enhance. We'll bring it into our training programs for the match officials for future, you know, for future games if that same thing comes on. But we always have a representative who will speak out for you. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, uh, Paul's next one to sorry, uh, sorry, ask a question. Go on, Paul. Kind of, it's kind of based on the same thing, really. I mean, I I, um, I went watching a rugby game oh, many years ago, um, and you could buy a little radio on the way in, and the, the, basically the referees were mic'd up. I know you can hear it on the telly, but it allowed you the ref, you know, it was a little disposable radio, and the refs were mic'd up, and it was so fascinating to hear what the referees were saying to the players. Well, I, I just wondered, I mean, because I just basically on the same sort of thing as we're talking about here, would, would you think that would help? And then the people in the ground, obviously it's not over the PA, it's in your ear, um, they'd be able to hear why you've made that decision and make your life easier. And I, I guess, you know, everybody would know where they stood with VAR and also, you know, with on-pitch on decisions. What, what do you think to that? Yeah, it, it, it's something that's been spoke about in the past. It's been brought to the table, but I don't think that particularly ever come off. It might be trialled in another country elsewhere, and if it works out, they'll gradually moved up the up the ladder and brought up to that the highest levels of football that we're involved in now. I think they've um, used it in the MLS, haven't they? I think they, um, they've used it over there. Yes, they have. And, and there's a lot of countries where trial periods, you know, trial and testing is taking place, but it's up maybe over a two-year period. And if it's beneficial, it works out and it enhances for everybody involved and connected with the game, then it will be brought forward. But to what levels, I'm not too sure. Why, why don't you think it'd work? I mean, for what, what reason do you think there is, is it? Well, when I've been watching Manchester City, um, and I do go as a neutral, and I, and I sit there and I listen to the crowd making remarks around me regarding, oh, that's an awful decision, referee, this, that's and the other. And... I've said this to Ian before, at the end of the day, supporters want to go and watch a good game, but more importantly than all, they want to score at least one more goal in the opposition and go, ho go home with three points. There'd be too much, and, and if there's been an incident in a game which they're not happy about, and they're not always going to get a clear and obvious view on it from where they're positioned in the crowd, then they're always on the mobile phones. They're looking for feedback from other people, and their minds are taken away, too busy concentrating on the phones instead of watching the next phase of play trying to get the result of what media, sports sports reporters are saying, this, that and the other, and what their colleagues are saying to them who, who maybe sat at the other end of the ground, have they got a better view on it? And that's, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the time is taken away by them, you know, concentrating too much instead of like, went back in the 60s and 70s where you're solely transfixed for 90 minutes and you accepted the decisions that were made rightly or wrongly. I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, it didn't, it didn't ruin um, my viewing it experience at all of the game because it's not it's not it's verbal it's in your ear it's a little rate pocket microphone with an earpiece that goes in your ear the battery lasts for 90 minutes you know there's 80 minutes of a rugby game and it literally the referees just mic'd up and you can hear everything that's going on 
you know, you can hear him talking to the players, you know, get on side, no, you're offside, any more of it, you're getting booked. So you could see, you could hear him talking to the players and it, it, it added to the experience, not detracted. There was no analysis or anything. There was nobody saying, you know, there's no discussions. It was literally the microphone was on the referee, like I've got this here and you could hear what the players were saying and what you were saying. Now, yeah, I, I think it, sorry. Yes, yeah, so I think interesting points there, like, would be for set-piece situations, free kicks, corner kicks. And you've seen it on numerous occasions where there's 15, 16 players within the goal area, within the penalty area, and they're all jostling and trying to get an advantageous point, you know, ready for when the delivery comes in. And you can see the referee hit the whistle before the corner kick or free kick's taken. He goes in, and then he's talking. Touch him, it's going to be a penalty. If he touches you, it's going to be a free kick defensively. And you want to hear that sort of remark and response back, I presume. Yeah. And it's and it's the same. A player put a player puts a challenge in on the halfway line. The attacker, the, the player in possession of the ball evades that challenge, continues his goal, you know, his, his goal bound run with the ball. And then um, you, if the referee's running past, you want to be hearing him saying to the player who's picking himself up the ground who's made the challenge. I'm watching you. Don't put any more challenges in that like, like that again. I've warned you a couple of times. The next one want a yellow a yellow card. If not more, if it's, unless it's more serious. Um, let's, let's move on to Louisa now and see what, what she's got to say. So you've been listening to that, Louisa. Um, any thoughts or any questions you'd like to put into the forum? Yeah, thanks very much, Ian. Um, yeah, um, I, on two of the points that we've, we've mentioned already, if that's OK, um, I'm, I'm involved in Formula One and Formula One and Formula Two as well. And, you know, they they don't classify their results immediately after a race is finished. There's a, you know, there's breathing space for, for any, you know, post-race incidents to, to be looked at and, and addressed. And then there's a classification and there's a sort of a bit of an accepted um, grace period then. So, you know, within an hour, it's, it's, um, it's an hour limit race to, to get your articles out then you know as a journalist and, and to get them online um and do you think that that could potentially be a benefit that there's a there's a classified result within a certain period of time post-match so then it, it doesn't necessarily mean that decisions have to be overturned as such that eliminates that uh, completely unless something goes higher and higher and then it ends up you know having to go further if it's something very serious do you think that could benefit maybe and there's a there's a grace period afterwards it's very interesting the points that are being put forward here you know when there's coverage of various sports you know like you say regarding formula one and that but i think we've all learned from day one within football at the when that final whistle hit at 10 to 5 we're going i'm, I'm going back to old school time now from three o'clock kickoffs that result will stand unless there has been anything against law within the laws of the game, i.e. incorrect substitutions that have taken place, um, regulations that have been broken with the club, then that will be looked at. And if it means there's going to have to be a, re, you, know, you know, players not registered in time, there's another example, and yet they're actually on the team sheet, then that game will be readdressed, like it has done already this season, the Carabao Cup. I think it was Bradford City at Exeter, um, where, where the game was um, had to be turned around and replayed yet again. So I think when everything's gone through and all the paperwork from the home club and the away club has been forwarded on and it's landed on the table at the Football League or the Premier League, then everything's dealt with accordingly. But I don't think there will ever be a grace at the conclusion of the game in football. 
But it's very interesting, what, and I take on board what you said there regarding the formula, that grace period. I wasn't aware of that, but that's interesting. Okay, well, thanks. I, I, I'm going to come back to the panel again in a bit, but I'm just going to throw a few questions out now and some subjects that have to be asked, I think, really, which, which are the ones that City fans talk about a lot. So, for example, the uh, uh, Stocky Blue, um, his, his general tweet says, what's his views on VAR? Well, we've heard what your views on VAR and the anti-City agenda in the press overall. Now, that could cover this subject. Um, last weekend, Liverpool got a, a penalty in the very dying seconds of a game, which can you know confirm that they were going to win that game. Everybody, I'm sure, including you, have seen that particular incident. I can't imagine there's anybody who thinks that that was a penalty. And then, of course, the conspiracy theory starts immediately that there is an agenda against City to win the Premier League or to make the Premier League title race more interesting, that the reason why that, that goal was, or that penalty was given, was because the Premier League um, or some of the mysterious people uh, want to make sure that Liverpool can close the game, uh, close the gap to City. You read that, you see that, you've seen the incident, Scott. You know, what, what do you make of that? And you're a blue as well. So just, I'm really interested to know what you think of that. Is it, is it uh, you know, does that type of thing happen? What, what do you think when you see and read it? Nobody's going to jeopardise their position as an active match official at any level of football. We have heard of rumours and stories, you know, all, all, all across the world where referees have received bungs, etc., to swing matches. Um, I have never detected anything or no conspiracy theories whatsoever. On the day, people can say th things like what you just stated there, Ian, because they've seen a decision wrongly overturned by the individual referee who was correct from the first decision he made. And we're referring back to the, um, the penalty kick award. Um, the referee was 100% correct not to award a penalty, but I can't believe that somebody in Stockley Park, which was the VAR referee, asked the referee to come over and have a, a, a you know, because he, in his opinion, felt there could be a chance of an overturn here and a penalty kick to be awarded. There's no conspiracy. I just thought that was bad management by the official in, in Stockley Park on that occasion. It's, it's worse than that, isn't it, if I've understood it, because the VAR referee isn't just having a slight disagreement with the decision that was made. The VAR referee is only meant to ask them to review it if they can see a clear and obvious error. And that's why the penalty that wasn't overturned when Edison either did or did not clip the Arsenal forward, it wasn't a clear and obvious. You could go either way on it. So I don't understand what happened there because... It, it, they could have had a difference of opinion, but that's not what VAR is meant to do. It's meant to be brought in if there's a clear and obvious error, as I understood it. Yeah, like the way you described the handball incident before, a deliberate handball. Uh, if it was punched into the goal uh, and the goal was awarded, then uh, and the referee was unsighted by the use of the yeah. hand, uh, then that would have been clear and obvious, and that would yeah. have been when you better come over and have a look at the, the monitor, and you'll make a judgment from one of the 33 cameras that are around, situated down the ground, and you've got every angle at every speed, uh, low level, high level, wherever the projection of the camera is, and then he'd have said, "I made an error of judgment." and the goal kick will not be awarded, and then it would have resulted in a yellow card for the player who committed the offence. It could have even been a second yellow card if it had been yeah. cautioned previously. They're the clear and obvious <clears throat> incidents that we should be looking at on that. But um, for some reason, um, it's all about opinions. Stockley Park, there, the, uh, the video referee, 
he's only said it's a possibility that you know you know you made an error of judgment there in not awarding a penalty come and have a second look at it as i said in slow motion etc different angles and that and it was, still wasn't a penalty after he overturned it himself and it's only the referee who can make the change he's only offered advice through var i mean said that scott I'm sure I've read some statistics just recently that when the referee is asked to go to a monitor, 95% or in fact, it, it may be in, it, in excess of 95% of referees then change their mind based on what they see. Now, does that mean 95% of the referees are getting it wrong or that they feel an enormous pressure on them that because Stockley Park have drawn their attention to this incident, that they feel they have to then change it, whatever they look at, almost that like they're, they're running over to the monitor thinking, I'm going to have to change it without even seeing it. And then when they see it, whatever's in their mind, they think Stockley Park have looked at this, there's two, three people made a decision, they're, they're telling me to look at it. So it's a fait accompli. Is yeah. that not the case? I know what would be going through my, my mind if I was asked to go over and look at the pitch side monitor, if I was the appointed referee on the day, I'd be giving myself thinking time, but I'll, I'll be replaying the incident back in my mind, my thought processes, my positioning, as I'm making my way to the monitor. And then when I look at the incident again, I'm, I may say to myself, why have they got me over for that? I don't want to change my original decision that I made, but at 95% of the decisions when they go to the monitor are overturned. And for what reason? I don't know. And I, and I can't give it any other answer than that to you. All right. Well, there's a, there's a guy called Graham Walker here who is sort of on this subject says, we see, we see he means fans in the, in the ground, obviously the grounds that have screens, not like Old Trafford and Liverpool that don't even have one. Uh, but we in the ground see what VAR shows. What makes the referee make decisions that go against the majority of what, what we see? So this isn't talking about looking at the replay on the screen, but we've all seen it. We've seen the clear decision. We've sometimes even looked at a replay and people on TV certainly will have seen a replay. How can so many referees go against the majority of what we see? And maybe that Liverpool penalty is a good example. You say it was wrong. I say it was wrong. I bet if I asked the whole panel and everybody listening to this, and even some Liverpool fans will say that was wrong. So we can all see it, and yet we, the referee still got it wrong. How can that happen? Well, it, unfortunately, it did happen in this particular case, and it would be interesting, like you say, about what we said earlier, being able to come forward when Adam brought the point out about being able to speak to the media. And that would have been an ideal opportunity for the match referee, who I think it was Kevin Friend on the day, where he could have spoke out aloud, but his decision was made and everybody's got to accept it, you know, after he, you know, reviewed it on the monitor side. And then when this, when, when certain grounds do have the, uh, the cameras there and the screen up there for the supporters to look at, they will still think it's a wrong, it's a wrong call. But it, what was awarded was awarded, and there's no there's no doubling back on it after after the penalty was given. Um, it is difficult, uh, and the beauty about it is like you know you, you could be sat twenty rows high up in the stand, a, a great you know overlooking everything. The referee's got an obstructed view; he's got players cutting inside him, and yet make that decision, may get it right, may get it wrong, and then it'll only be for that like a clear and obvious error, as we've spoken about before, where then he'll get a, the, the nod to come over and have a look at the pitch side monitor if it resulted in, in one, a penalty, mistaken identity, 
um, the resulting was it uh, a reckless or was it a, a challenge or was it one that endangered um, an opponent where he's given a red card and then he could rescind that there and then by looking at the monster and revert it back to a yellow card. So you may say to yourself for a, a challenge that goes in, that doesn't warrant a red card, that's yellow card, like what you're asking me there. But then he's got the beauty of going over and rescinding that red card there and then to a yellow card. And we've all seen it where the cards have been taken out and the red's gone away and the yellow ones come out instead. And that is because we, if we didn't have the VAR on those particular instances, then that's prevented the player from getting the suspension for the game after because he's been able to go over and look at that decision again. Even while you were refereeing, Scott, and you might not have had VAR at your disposal, but of course you had the radio contact with your, 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 your linesman or yes. your assistant referee. So Phil Erdley says... Um, are referees obliged to list, listen to their assistants? Do assistant refs get the chance to question a ref's decision during the game? Well, I'll let you into some of my pre-match instructions that I used to give out to the assistants when we were using the communication kits, you know, in our ears. And I will say, if I was at one end, there was a corner kick, uh, and the keeper gathered quickly in the air, and then he punted a 50, 60-yard long ball up front, there's no way... Any man on earth can get to that dropping zone to watch the 9-5 in the, in the defend, uh, defending half. I would then say to down my microphone to the assistant who's in that half of the field of play, referee it for me until I get there. And, I, and, and it's all in his hands then, providing it's, it's, it's got, the ball's going towards his, his diagonal. I don't want him to officiate for me when if the ball's comes to the other side when I should be taking up that patrol. But uh, we support each other and we offer advice through the microphones. Uh, a flag will go up, accommodated by a few words to me. Uh, it'll say free kick, free kick only. Free kick, in my opinion, it's a caution. Now, he's just giving me information and I'll say, I appreciate your time and your concerns in giving me that caution or a red card offence. But it gives me a thought, I thought that was a caution as well. If I didn't think it was a caution, it was a free kick only. I'd say, not, not being disrespectful, but I'm only giving a free kick but at least we were getting feedback and telepathy between us. I'll come back to some of the more of these questions perhaps later on, but I'm going to throw it back now to the, the panel now, just to let you know we're recording this on Zoom, so it means I can, you might be listening on an audio podcast, but I can see the people who are involved. Not that that's always a good thing, um, but I can actually see them. <laughs> so, you uh, <laughs> so if anyone, just put your hand up if you if you want to come in and ask a question so that I can see that. So the first one to do that is Louisa. So fire away, Louisa. Um, I'm coming back to VAR again, really, because uh, you mentioned there were 33 cameras around the ground. And if I'm not 100% mistaken, it, the, the ground can be maybe 120 metres long. So if you sort of divide that up between the, the cameras, it potentially you've got 12 along each side, but I don't know where they're all placed. Um, so with that sort of in mind, that's one every 10 metres. I don't, I personally don't feel that there is enough coverage of that ground with cameras. And is, is it still going to be part of the future of VAR that they are going to continue cameras? Um, and if they are, are they going to increase the cameras around the grounds or are they perhaps thinking of some infrared technology, which would be pretty much accurate? Because when there's some replays and we see this on the TV and the, you see the lines that have been drawn by the VAR people, you know, where, where they are, it sometimes feels like the camera's behind the play 
And then, so even from my opinion, I think, well, how can you tell what's in front of those players? How can you tell if that shoulder or if that, you know, knuckle is in front of the opposition player for it to be offside, for example, when the camera doesn't look like that's in the correct place? The camera looks way behind here. So the question basically is, is, is cameras part of the future and, and are cameras part of the future? And if they are, will they increase them for more accuracy? Or do you feel like infrared would be a better, more accurate technology? Uh, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, regarding the, the amount of cameras that are going to be positioned or located in and around the ground, uh, I don't know if that will be enhanced by, by there being any more in the future. Uh, regarding infrared, that's, that's a, a strong possibility. But they have actually given a margin uh, for this coming season uh, for the attack, in the attack, in favour of the attacker, um, due to the fact that we've and we've all seen isolated isolated incidents of it where the lines have been drawn, but they're not in a true and accurate line, and it is visible that when when it comes up onto the screen. So what they've done is then there was like a, uh, one line which would then be highlighted by another coloured line, and if that overlapped. The, the original line that was being used, that would then allow a five, up to a five centimetre tolerance for the attacker. If he was slightly in an offside position by that amount of by five centimetres, then it would go in his favour as not being offside. So that was the strategy that they've done to eradicate the that the original first line that came out, you know. But prior to VAR coming out regarding the line systems, um, as we sort of like moved on and we've got uh, into, the, into the year that we have now, Groundsmen are absolutely superb. The way they design the pitch, the way they cut the pitch and that. And my assistants uh, used to go out 15, 20 minutes in the warm-up and I, they always knew which side they were, that they were patrolling. And the way the grass was cut, normally in 10 metre strips, you know, and, and it's all differently shaded, they, uh, they would use them as their markings to, to, you know, to monitor offside, not offside. They would even use hoardings as a, you know, as a pinpoint to try and bear on something and use that to try and benefit their decision-making as well. It was Thank just little you. things. Oh. Yeah, just on the same thing as um, uh, on VA, uh, sorry, on offsides. Bearing in mind, offside law was brought in for... Oh, 1863. Right, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was to stop goal hanging, as we call it, yeah? So do you think there's too much emphasis played upon Offsides, this marginal five centimeters a knuckle. Basically, it's there to stop goal hanging. So why don't the referees just basically be told anyone suspected of goal hanging is up? Forget rid, forget rid of offside as it is because it's become too too important in a game and too many games are decided and too much excitement's taken out of the game because of marginal five centimeters fingernails. Wouldn't it be better if we just stop goal hanging because that's what it's there for in the first place? Yeah, well, we've all heard of IFAB, but you've got IFAB and FIFA. So IFAB, that, that, that's the um, International Federation Association, Association Board, sorry. Uh, they actually put the rules and laws of the game together. And then the governing body, they're the main governing body along with FIFA. Uh, and then we've got to actually put those into, into system and carry out their duties. But for me personally, I always felt that offside should only be given if there was clear daylight between both the player attacking and the defender but now that's been eradicated and brought backwards and make it made it more difficult that was that's the only thing i would like to see as an amendment in law coming up in the near future regarding the offside clear visible daylight between the last secondary and most defender and the attacker yeah yeah 
Yep. Mark, you got a question? Yeah, the only thing about stopping goal hanging is you'd need a line somewhere. You you know, at the moment it's the last defender, but if you were to be a bit more flexible, you'd still need to move the line a yard beyond you'd be on the last defender or ten. So you, I, I, it's a great idea, but I think you'd end up with the line somewhere. We'd be arguing over toenails and elbows and things <laughs> even there somewhere else. Well, I was gonna so was gonna say it's, it's similar to what I've said before about VAR decisions. Generally, the technology I don't think is quite good enough to be making finite millimeter decisions on offside, and I actually think even that should be like a, a half body or a full body offside before they overrule the decision. It's in praise of linesmen and women and referees. They get them right so often. When, you know, live watching for our strange angle, because we're not always lined up with it, obviously, uh, I'd much prefer VAR, VAR um, offsides to be given infrequently. And I also think they should be given within a time frame. So you've got so many seconds to make that decision with the two or three angles that you get given. And that would make the game miles better in the stadium. I don't know what you think about time frames for that. Yeah, th th that's a great point about the time frame. But, I mean, at the end of the day, being stood in an offside position is nothing against law. You're entitled in law to stand in an offside position. Right. Uh, you always go back to like the likes of Bill Shankly, who always used to say, if you stood in an offside position, you shouldn't be on the field of play. And it should be, and it should be given as offside all the time. Whereas now you can see players who are deliberately slow coming back into from an offside position from an offside position, which is right within law, then they'll they're still there, and then the ball's pinned 15 yards to the left hand or right hand side of them. The fellow teammate cuts cuts in, takes the ball. They then turn and come back into the second phase of play. So yeah. they're waiting. Um, and regarding the time factor of it, uh, uh, you know, of giving an offside decision, a player could be have a ball pinged towards the corner flag. Attacker's put, going down on it. And after he's made that initial run, he could then decide to stop, hold his run. And the, the lad who, the, you know, his teammate who's played the ball would then continue his run and pick the ball up then a flag's gone up too early because he's indicated an offside. So that time lapse there is very difficult because in actual fact, even though he's made a, a movement towards the ball, he's not interfered with the... I, kind of meant, time lapse, I meant time lapse with the VAR more than on the pitch, actually. I'm not a big fan of the time lapse on the pitch. I think it would be better if they made him quicker. But it doesn't... I, 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 it's the VAR. I think that when we see a goal fly in the back of the net, everyone goes crazy. And then the flag doesn't go up. So you think, oh, brilliant, it's a goal. Tottenham, two Tottenham goals I can think of. And then they've taken ages to make the VAR decision to totally ruin the end of the game. I think they should have to make the VAR overrule quicker. That way, at least we know more quickly and it makes the live game better. It's fine in the, on the TV. I just think it kills off an element of the live game. So I'd like the VAR decision to be made more quickly within a time frame because it's clear and obvious you should be able to do it quickly. Well, that's what they're actually working on to enhance this right. you know, future season to go, you know, in the future and that. But they can only work through certain things at certain times and see how it operates and that. And that's why they take these uh, experiments to other countries as well and they put it all into practice. They've even had uh, players going into the um, into the referees' departments as well, working out how far work, the commentators, pundits, they've all gone in to see how it all operates. But I agree with you regarding time. Prior to VAR, when the flag went up, it was yeah. one second, given yeah. on, you know, given, let's get on with the game, defending free kick. If it didn't go up, play continued. If you scored, you scored. There was no waiting, you know, no anxiety, no tension of waiting. Will it be allowed? Is it going to be disallowed? On that subject... 
right? You, uh, we spoke about this the other day, Scott, and you you know that it really bugs me, and I don't think I'm the only one who's bugged by this, that the linesman, the assistant referee these days, doesn't necessarily put the flag up when an offside happens, even though we can all see it's happened, it's clearly offside, um, and there's a confusion to me as a supporter, as a non-looker, as to whether that's a direct instruction, because sometimes they put the flag up, sometimes you can see it's offside, but they carry on, the, the game carries on. And, and I know when we talked about this subject the other day, you gave me an example, not quite the same thing, but maybe the two could be explained here, about uh, an incident involving Rodri, uh, where he came back on from an offside position. So there's two things there. First of all, the linesman, uh, deciding, uh, making a conscious decision not to put the line flag up, to let the game run on, when it's clearly one player running after the ball. It's not as if he's not going to interfere with it. And they let it run on, which could eventually lead to some sort of injury or, or something like that, which, which is completely unnecessary. And everybody in the ground, I, I shout to people, this is offside. And when we watch it go on for another three or four seconds and you think, mm -hmm. why is it? And then, then eventually the flag goes up and you think, why did they wait that long? But also that Rodri story. So there's two for you to deal with. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I'll just press the Rodri story. Um, yeah, up till this season, over the last two years, it has been a, a long delay with the assistant raising his flag. And that was the instruction. And I sort of like the example I was just giving there. The, about the put there previously, where the ball's punched into the in, into the corner, placed in, in an offside position, who's again in law is not offside, and yet the, his teammate who's kicked the ball makes that movement, gathers the ball. If the flag had gone up too quick, then the decision would have been wrong. But the one where the ball is direct down the middle and it, it, it enhances the goalkeeper to come out, make a challenge, and you said somebody could get serious injury from that particular collision. The flag should have gone up a lot more quicker. But this year. It has I've noticed a bigger incline in the of the flag going up quicker to result to stop that incident occurring. And going back to the Rodri incident where we spoke about there, uh, just cast your mind back panel to um, the Man City Aston Villa game last season, where um, Rodri again stood in an offside position, uh, some fifteen yards behind Mings who gathered the ball on his chest. Rodri then decided to, yeah, uh, Rodri then decided to make a movement towards him and took the ball away from under his feet and played the uh, Bernardo Silvin, who went on to score. Does everybody, anybody yeah, yeah, I remember that? Yeah, yeah. So um, at the time, the ref, referee, assist, the assistant referee would have been saying to uh, John Moss, who was the match referee on the night, um, Rodri, offside, position not interfering with play. That, that would have been the initial feedback and that had been given to the referee. Then he would have said, Rodri now closing down on defender. Rodri's taken ball from under the defender and has played, played, played on. Now, John Moss, the referee on the day, would have got all that information relayed to him. So he's got one angle looking through it and also the, the assistant. So it's like 90 degrees looking into, this, into the incident. The goal was awarded. Uh, if I remember rightly, Dean Smith, the Villa manager, was sent from the technical area into the stands, sorry, into the changing rooms from there. Um, and it continued for about 48 hours, long debates within the footballing world over why that goal was allowed to stand. Because everybody felt that Rodri had put pressure on Mings, resulting in him, him uh, having impact on him where the flag should have gone up. 
So Mings doesn't need any help in that regard, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the PGMOL um, referees manager then submitted report along with other um, associations to FIFA and IFAB to say, could you please explain this? And it was correct in law for the goal to stand, but there was, that was a loophole that not just Rodri, but maybe other teams have done it as well, have got through because of the wording within the laws of the game. That was then rectified, and if that incident was to occur again, automatically it would be awarded as an offside decision. So okay. that's just one prime example. Let, let me ask you this question. Mike Cook represents a lot of people with this question, and I know this one is a tricky one for you, so you answer it how you think fits here, because I know that you know this gentleman concerned, but it's a specific question, and as soon as I ask it, everybody knows what, what this means. Should Anthony Taylor be refereeing City or United games? Now, there is a perception out there, just to explain, that Anthony Taylor or his family are United fans, and that they would then show some bias against City during games. Now, if you feel that compromises you, Scott, don't answer it directly. Uh, you can answer it more obtusely, but I'll leave that one with you to make the judgment. Yeah, I'll answer that one for you, Ian, and uh, it will probably put things to bed regarding what people think of Anthony Taylor, of, of his uh, support within the club and that. Anthony is based in Cheshire. He has a right to be appointed to any club to officiate, whether it's City, United, Crew Alexander, whoever. At the end of the day, nobody knows who he supports. I know who he supports, and he's an avid Altrigan football club supporter. And that's where his allegiances have been all this time. If you catch him by back many years, you had Neil Midgley, based in Manchester. He refereed the derby at May Road between Manchester City and Manchester United. 5-1. He actually did the 5-1. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there has, you know, other referees who have been in the borough. Roger Dilts, I think, was another referee who refereed. He came from the, the Mosley area. Uh, he refereed at uh, May Road also. But at the end of the day, if it was Anthony Taylor's turn to referee an FA Cup final at Wembley Stadium, for example... And it was Manchester City against Manchester United, and it was his appointment, he'd be appointed to it. Adam's got a question. Yeah, um, one not involved in rules and, and perhaps one not so serious, more in terms of your personal experience. Um, in the days, um, the many games that you've refed, is there one particular player that stands out as being the most difficult to control or perhaps was a bit of a nuisance so that when you were coming up to referee his particular team, you'd be thinking, oh, you know, flipping heck, I've got to deal with this guy today. And and if so, if you can pick out a, a player in particular, why, what, what would be the sort of things that would typically annoy you on a pitch from a player? I'm not going to name names on certain individual players, but there is many, many examples of certain individuals. You know, uh, the, the more experienced you become, you know who uh, the players that are going to cause issues. You know the players who have lost pace, they've lost the skill factor, but they're still getting picked up because they've got a good old head on them. They've got experience that they can offer in and around the teammates and that. They're the ones who will try and slow the game down. They'll put in the free kicks. They're the ones who will chirp away all day at you. But you've got to respond back. And, you know, and if you've got on the same wavelength as them, you can let them have a little bite at you. 
But if you just come out and have a gentle word with them, just say, listen, the repercussions are, I know you've had five cautions already up to this day. I'm not going to be the referee that's got you, that you're going to turn down and say he's got you uh, banned for the next three three games or whatever. What about the previous five referees who've cautioned you? It's just not me that's accumulated all your yellow card offences. But there is players... Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm even aware that managers have done the homework on referees. They've looked at uh, incidents of my, say, my previous three games. Not every manager does this. Uh, and they'll say, how many yellow cards has this, has this referee had? How, what, how often does he give free kicks? How often will he let the game flow? You know, will he let it open up and then draw it all in? They analyse your performances as well. Uh, Louisa, you've got a question. I do, yeah. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, Scott, um, just something really more about you, because we all know everything about each other. We're all quite friendly here. Um, and I'd just like to know that a couple of things, really. Um, are there any matches that you've been really proud of refereeing or maybe had a sense of achievement of refereeing? And also, there's been a couple of discussions about sort of handballs in nets across recent times. But do you ever look back at, upon the hand of God, you know, of, of international Maradona days and wonder and hope as a referee, you could maybe have changed that decision yourself or been on that pitch and done something different in that match. So a couple of questions and personal to you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still can remember several of the bad incidents of, you know, not performances, but, you know, um, decisions that I have made in, in games. But I can never remember the good ones. It's always the bad ones. And, that, and that's how professional you are. And then how much it hits you and hurts you if you know you've made an error of judgment. They stick in your mind. I can remember um, a particular incident at Derby County a few years ago. They were playing Bournemouth. And the goalkeeper came out of his penalty area. Derby County player shoots towards goal. He handles with two outstretched hands the goalkeeper out of his penalty area. And I've gone straight away. I've hit the whistle. This is going to be a red card offence and a free kick. But as soon as I've hit the whistle, the ball has actually gone back to the original Derby County who played the shot, he's gone to ground and it's ricocheted back off him from 25 yards and floated directly back into the goal. Now, I've learned a lot from that thing. Hold your whistle. I've, I've prevented a goal being scored. I've, I could have prevented sending the goalkeeper off and just warranted, you know, just issued a yellow card to him. But it didn't cause any issues because Derby County went on to win the game 2-0, but it became a talking point. And that particular clip was used all over the country at referees for our, uh, uh, meetings for young one referees, even the modern-day referee, to use as an example how to just be more assured in your decision-making. But I can go back to, I've had many appointments uh, at the Millennium Stadium in Cup Finals and Wembley Stadium, and I always said that uh, every game... It's like a cup final. You don't know. Expect the unexpected when you walk over that white line at five to three when you're leading both teams out. But that's an honour in itself, walking out two teams. You know, you're the third team and there's only three of you or, or four if there's a fourth official appointed. That's some good times. And there's been a lot of moments where I thought I could have done better in my refereeing on that particular thing. It was either lack of concentration. There was nothing against law that I didn't do right or wrong. It was just the reading of the game and what I could have done better. And I always pass those particular incidents on to younger referees who are coming through. Benefit from what I show you, and then it'll be one less mistake eradicated from your performance. 
definitely something to be proud of that that you you looked upon that and just learned yourself and then positively affected games from that moment on so thank you so much scott thank you thank you very much oh uh, just quick one um I, i'm a massive mass uh, match going fan i love the, the the match day experience i like to think that um i'm the uh, the 12th man if you like um have you ever been uh, swayed by the uh, the crowd Hand on heart, never, ever, once have I been swayed. So that came so your 12th man theory then, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's 2,000 there or 22,000. You've got to be strong and bold. Yeah. No, let, me, let me whip through a few, a, few questions, a few of these just to finish off with, uh, just to give a few name checks as well to all those who took time, time to contact me. Uh, Peter Fitton, uh, hopefully we've uh, answered your question there. I know um, Louisa asked about the TV cameras, etc. Um, Dean McGee wanted to know, uh, did we win that match that you refereed, which we've answered the, the game against Oldham. Uh, Phil Erdley, Graham Walker. Taff Roberts says that he was a joiner, or maybe it was you that was a joiner, at Direct Works and described you as a top bloke. And he says, you've got a funny story about Brian Horton. Is that something broadcastable? Uh, right. Would it be Brian or would it have been Peter Reed? I used to tell many a story to colleagues at work, but I don't think I'll be broadcasting that this evening on that. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, if you just gave me a little inkling into what it was regarding Brian Horton, but I know Brian... That's all he's That's all he's Yeah, no, I, it, it, it may be regarding Peter Reid in actual fact when he took over his very first game in charge of Sunderland as manager at, at the old Roker Park. I was the match official on that against Sheffield United. There was an incident there, but uh, just read his autobiographies, put it all in. <laughs> uh, Mark Thomas Elliott uh, was asking you about uh, the, the difficulty of maintaining impartiality which of course have answered uh, Pat Godfrey says uh, why don't referees follow the rules of the game instead of having their own interpretation of the rules <laughs> not booking every player that surrounds them who swears at them booking players for diving blatant time wasting and hasn't VAR caused the standard of officiating to be at an all time low and alienated officials even more so she's quite critical, really. Very so, uh, comments there. I'd, li I'd, I'd like to ask you, what's your honest opinion on the, uh, the standard of the officiating, both on the Premier League and at the Football League? Because now we have two uh, groups of referees, don't we? We have the uh, select group one for the Premier League and select, uh, select group two for the Championship. And they've all gone full time now officiating, and you know. Uh, I'll throw in very, very quickly before the others come in and I'll say, I think the referees, I'm a big, big fan of officials. I don't believe for one second in the conspiracy theories. I know there'll be a lot of people shout me down on that. Um, I, I think because we're tribal, we see things that we want to see rather than the way that they are. And when you watch a neutral game, which I do quite a lot, the standard of the refereeing in the neutral games is far higher than it is in the City games because, yeah. of course, you have that tribal badge on you. I'm a big admirer. The one thing I would say, though, is that I do think that VAR has undermined the authority of officials in a way that I don't really like. I'd rather the referee, as much as possible, made the decision on the pitch and only clear and obvious mistakes should be dealt with by VAR. That's my own personal view. I'll go around now, and this is now, I'm going around clockwise on my screen, which will be different probably than the other screens. So Louisa, uh, what's your answer to that? Just remind me again, sorry. What were... <laughs> well, the standard of refereeing really was what you're asking about, Scott, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, yeah. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I, I do think it's definitely come up. You know, I do think back in the 90s and the, the beginning of the noughties were perhaps a little bit uh, suspect uh, on some matches and some games and things like what we used to refer as even Fergie time and, you know, injury time that was supposed to be five minutes and ending up nine. Um, I'm, I'm kind of glad to see that that's sort of come, that that's become very tight now. Um, um, but you know, it, Tony, who's one of our other crew as well, one of our other squad, you know, has sort of mentioned that about time wasting, what Ian's just said, um, and injuries and, uh, you know, red cards and the fact that VAR still isn't necessarily incorporating that into the extra time. And even though it's it, it was a question of Tony, um, if I can still maybe get a response on, on how you feel about that as well, because it does seem like he has a really good point of, you know, the the amount of time that's taken on the pitch for certain incidents isn't added on, doesn't seem to be being added on. What, what do you think? Uh, I've noticed that more so in Europe with the, the European referees, especially Champions League, uh, and the amount of times that the, that the referee has actually blown the whistle up after 45 minutes and two seconds, when you know clearly there's been three minutes of, of stoppage time that should be added within the first half. Um, that's my bugbear within um, European referees, um, the calculation is, I used to get my fourth official to, to clock down the minutes of when the stoppages were, get a rough estimate and guidance, make a note of it, and then five, and then two or three minutes prior to um, the termination of the 45 of the first or the second half, you'd hit the armpiece on the buzzer and they say, Scott, you've got four minutes to add up. I'll, I'll say, I'll confirm that. And that's when the fourth official will put the four minutes into the board and then put it up. But I always used to say, that's so, it, a lot of people were notifying the FA and the Football League, and they were all saying, why are we not getting the added on time compared to the stoppages? So we started to make proper notes of when the injuries were, if it was injuries, the time-wasting tactics, and then we'd add that amount of time on. That's what I'd like to see as well, and I think Tony would as well, that in the matches that it is very obvious that it's not been added on, I think that would just tighten everything up just a little bit more for sure, yeah. That, thank you, Scott. No problem, thank you. Thank you to Paul Mayer, to Al Zemit, Daryl Bourne, who says any chance of doing away with the AR. Um, I don't think he's a fan. Um, uh, so Vincent Waldron, to Rick Towers, to Paul Blackshaw, um, to Colin Barrick, to Col and Stocky Blue. Uh, I'll quickly go to the other three who've on the panel today for their final sort of comments, really. We've had Scott here giving up in his time and, and very honestly answering everything, which is amazing. And, I'm sure this won't be the last we have of Scott on the podcast, as long as he's willing to come back again. Uh, but Adam, um, referees, what, um, what you've heard really as well, how do you sum that up? Yeah, well, I think the standard officiating, um, I think it's really good, to be fair. Um, I think with the improvements that we make of in VAR over the next few years, um, I can imagine things only getting better. Um, and to be fair, I don't, um, I think VAR is definitely helping. So there's always going to be mistakes, you know, as a, as a grassroots referee, I'd made mistakes. I'd love to have a camera next to me when I was refereeing, you know, under 18s or whatever, and there'd be fights kicking off all over the show. I'd love to have a camera next to me. And I think, you know, that can only help and, and it'll it'll minimise those errors um, because referees are human at the end of the day, aren't they? And they're always going to, always going to get that but it won't stop me at the side of the uh, at the side of the pitch now as a fan sort of shouting at the referee when there's a bad decision and we're always going to get that aren't we so I think just summing that up as um, my opinion on it I think yeah I think the, the standard officiating is really good and you know we can only expect those errors to be to be reduced even more as we start to fine-tune VAR and 
things start to become a, a, a little more perfect on that front. Mark, you've seen as many referees, I'm sure, of, as I have. What do you think? Is it is it getting better? Um, you know, was Scott one of the best? Let's sing his praises. Oh, of course, of course, Scott was one of the best. But well, I, I've said it earlier on. I actually think VAR has shown just how good the teams on the pitch and on the side of the pitch actually are. And the one that I can't get over is offside. They get it right so often. And uh, offside such a difficult thing to get right. You know, when someone kicks the ball, when someone makes a run, all the diff- different elements of an offside, as uh, Scott was saying before, you know, actually offside until, you know, you're interfering or getting involved in the phase of play. So I actually think they do a great job. It's VAR that needs looking at. The, ref- the standard of refereeing in Stockley Park isn't good enough, in my honest opinion. And... I don't think we should be doing this as we go along. All this stuff, what we should have been doing with VAR is trialling it somewhere else. The, ri- the, the, the riches in the Premier League could have been paying for the Northern Premier or its version, whatever it's called now, to be, to be trialling it for a few years. We shouldn't have in- introduced it when we did without trialling it for a few years and paying some money to the clubs that probably need it. Because all, all the things that have come up that you could never have imagined um, so I think they made they they missed a trick there, but I, I actually think the standard refereeing and the people doing the assistant refereeing is very high. I, I just wish VAR was as good. That's oh, very pleasing. The feedback on that's very pleasing, very pleasing indeed. And like you say, ninety eight point four percent is the most accurate, you know, the highest accurate rate in the decision making with all the stats that have come out. Because every referee and every assistant referee, every performance is an, analyzed with the two you know through sports scientists through the system, and they, they, they know how many metres they are for, from the ball at each particular, you know, second of the game, uh, their viewing angles, and with all the training and the uh, adaptation to it, it's move, we're moving there in the right way. Paul, um, just before we wrap up, you've got the last word from the panel, your assessment of referees. To be honest with you, I mean, it's been, it's been, it's been fantastic to have you on this today. It's been a real... Not an eye-opener as such, but it's, it's been refreshing for to be able to speak to a referee that's actually come out and, and, and in my opinion, been very honest. Um, you're Mancunian, so you, you're going to be honest, and that's that's what I like about City fans. Um, I think the standard of refereeing is better than it's ever been. I completely agree that VAR's undermining them. Um, you know, it's like the, the, the frame rates that they've got for these cameras is, at, I don't know, 50 frames a second or something. The human eye is the best camera on the planet. Now, like Mark said, the referees and the linesmen, they're getting these things right time and time again, and it's being undermined by the ref, by the, by the, um, the people in, 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 you know, in the box, should we call it, the little wagon they're in. Um, I remember when I was playing rugby once, and uh, they, I, I was the captain to the plate, the referees used to speak to me quite a lot um, for, for, some, for some good things and some bad things, but he always said you can't beat a decision on the pitch because you can see the, any intent in the player's eyes. You, you'll see you'll see sort of like um, a tackle in football or rugby uh, from the sidelines and you'll just think, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It was an accident. But when you're on the pitch, you can see and you know at that split second what happened. You knew whether he meant that tackle and you... The VAR, anybody off the pitch, the fans and everybody, you have to be on that pitch to see that. And the referees, that's where the human element comes into it. And for me, that that's fantastic. I I don't mind the referee getting it wrong 
because of the speed that the game goes at. I don't mind that. I mean, I don't mind a linesman getting it wrong. What annoys me is, is when somebody analyzes it with all the millimeters and all the rest of the stuff, and then kind of puts pressure on the referee who's doing a he's doing a great job, um, and and then and then ruins it for him. It ruins his reputation. Um, and he's not even there to face the music. He just crawls out of his little wagon and then off he goes. You've got to face the music. I, I, well, I think referees are doing a great job. I think that's the, the best praise you can have, Scott. So just let me say, because we've gone on a little bit longer than we normally do. I hope those who are listening to the podcast appreciate that it's probably has been worth doing a little bit more today. Um, and obviously we've had a, 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 and it's a lot to think about as well to take in. It's a sort of podcast I might even listen back to, even though I've been <laughs> doing it, because you sort of want to listen more detail to the answers that you're hearing. So all I can say is that's down to you, Scott. I've uh, been a fantastic guest. Uh, thanks very much to Mark, to, to Paul, to Adam and to Louisa and to all the people who wrote to me on social media and contributed. Not every one of them has been asked, but I hope they've all been answered. Um, so my, my, question, my final question to you, Scott, is first of all, are you prepared to come on again and have you enjoyed it? <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Ian, and the, and the honesty and the questions and the answers and everybody's thoughts in the mind process, what you put forward this evening has been beneficial for me. And I just hope that that is what the general feeling is right across the country from supporters all around. Um, it's been great input from you all. Um, I've a, it's not been daunting. There was no questions untoward that you put me on the back boiler about. And uh, I just hope like in the future, we can clarify and get what we want out of the use of the VAR system. I'm going to suggest, uh, as long as you're up for it, Scott, that you become part of our Forever Blue squad and we get you on anyway as a City fan and you can tell us what you think about certain decisions. Are you up for that? Absolutely. Perfect. It's a good job you said that, otherwise I'd have to edit the answer out, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I gave myself some thinking time then. That's always a good sign of a referee, that, Scott. Could be like um, Gallagher, couldn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks better, very much. Obviously. Honestly, thanks very much to everybody. Really appreciate it. Most of all, thanks to charleslouis.co.uk, Chartered Mortgage Advisors. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to do the podcast. But uh, tonight, we couldn't certainly couldn't have done this one without Scott Matheson, former Football League referee and City fan, and a top fella as well. Uh, thanks to everybody else. Thanks to you for listening. Share it, tweet, tweet it. Do whatever you can to let everybody listen to this and look out probably for a bit of it on the YouTube channel as well. See you again next week when we've got a match to talk about, Fulham in the FA Cup. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember always, it's great to be a blue.